Welcome to the SJBC Sunday Morning Sermon. We hope you enjoy this message brought to you by our senior pastor, Dr. Richard Carver. For more podcasts, videos, and information on our church, please visit mysjbc.org. Fifty-four there in your pew Bible this morning, Colossians chapter 2. If you think about the impact that Christ had, statistically they tell us that during Christ's earthly ministry, he only spoke to about 20,000 to 25,000 different people. And just speaking to that small group of people really changed the face of our world and, and, and how we can have a relationship with God. And, and Paul is concerned about maintaining the purity of that relationship that we have with Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And last week we saw that Paul was used military terms to describe uh, what a believer's spiritual life is like. And he still has this, carries that, this theme of, of the military idea forward in today's passage, and he's warning them to be alert. Now, if Jesus spoke today uh, because of satellite, he could speak to probably a billion people, you know, just like that. Speaking to only 20,000 or so people, you are the fruit of that message to 20 or 1,000 or so people. Because someone told someone who told someone who told you. And now you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Paul wants you to be careful, wants us to be careful. He wants the Christians at Coloss to be careful. Otherwise, we might be carried off as captives, he says in this passage. There were false teachers that were moving in and around Colossus. And just like today, we have false teachers in our world that proclaim a false gospel or want to attach requirements onto the gospel that we have. And these false teachers were in Coloss, and they didn't go out winning lost people to uh, their cause and to their belief system. They were taking, just like cults today, they were taking people out of the churches. They were spiritually kidnapping people from out of the church at Colossus. And most people who participate in pagan, anti-Christian cults at one time participated in a Christian church in some form or fashion, in some denomination. And they've been carried off. And so Paul issues a warning here in this passage, using some military terms, to advise us to be alert that we not be carried off by something that sounds good, to keep our faith Secure. So how is it possible for false teachers, cults, to capture people? Well, the answer is really easy. People are easy to capture and easy to, to catch when they're ignorant of God's Word. When you don't know the truth of God's Word, it's easy to convince people of something that's not there or something else that, that should be there. And they become fascinated by the philosophy and the empty delusion of false teachers. And when a person doesn't know the doctrines of the Christian faith, they can easily be captured by false religions. And so Paul issues this warning in Colossians chapter 2, verse 8. Paul says, See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. And there's a whole lot there. We'll unpack that in just a moment. But there's a lot going on in verse 8. He says in verse 9, For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ you've been brought to fullness. He's the head over every power and authority. 
In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole, your whole self ruled by the flesh was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised, through, uh, raised with him through your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. There's a lot there too. We'll unpack that one. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. For he gave us all, he forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, and he can disarm because we just learned it up in, back in verse 10 that he's the head over every power and every authority. So he can disarm. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. All right, here's what we have. We need to be just as alert today as the Colossian believers need to be alert back then. There, there are false teachers abounding everywhere trying to kidnap Christians from church and still happening today. The whole movements that we've seen that around in Texas and, and with Jim Jones and David Koresh, all those started with someone giving a false doctrine to immature Christian people, pulling them out of the church and forming a cult. And those are not the only two, but there are many. And the philosophy of false teachers is hollow. It's deceptive for several reasons. False teachers' teachings and philosophies are hollow and deceptive because... Paul tells us they're rooted in human tradition. Some person has concocted this idea. They've made it up. And it's not founded in, in the, the truth of God's Word. The important thing about any teaching is its origin. How did it get started? Did it come from God or did it come from a person? If it came from God, then we need to listen. If it comes from a person, Paul says don't listen. Don't get carried off. The religious leaders in our Lord's day had similar traditions. They had added several hundred additional laws on top of the laws that God had given uh, the nation of Israel, the Jewish people. And they were very zealous to protect those laws and to obey those laws that they came up with. We meet the Apostle Paul. That's exactly what he's doing. He's defending the religious zealots and their ideas which had nothing to do with what God had revealed uh, to the nation of Israel. Paul, before he met the Lord and was saved, he was very zealous about the traditions of people. And so when Jesus stopped him on the Emmaus Road and asked him, why are you persecuting me? Why are you killing me? To get Paul's attention. It shook Paul to the core and that's why his life was so drastically and dramatically changed because he realized He'd been hanging on to false, to things that were false and false teachings. And so it changed his life. I mean, what would happen if a new Christian from a distant mission field were to visit <clears throat> some of the churches in the United States? Uh, I'm certain that they would probably be shocked by some of the ideas and some of the practices that cannot be supported by God's word that are going on in the church. I've shared before, Stephanie and I, the first church we served out of seminary, when we got there, they had a hang of the green service. And we had just gotten there a few weeks prior to the, 
the hanging of the green. So weren't familiar with, didn't know everybody's name or the traditions of the church yet. But they had an aisle down the middle of the sanctuary. And a, they uh, had a little girl dressed up and a, had her holding some candles. And the responsive reading said, uh, a Christmas sprite will light the way. Well, you know what a sprite is. That's a little god that's in the forest that the Druids and the Celts, Celtics worship. It's a, a forest mystic god. And Stephanie and I looked at each other and said, did they just say a Christmas sprite will light the way? What had happened, uh, being near Fort Knox, and there's uh, so many witch covens there, Wicca had found its way into that church. And they were practicing Wicca. They were teaching reincarnation in a Baptist church. Now, it took about three years to get all that out. But thankfully, we got it out. And that's how easily it can happen. I had deacons in that church that wanted me to come and to pray for dead grandchildren that they would be allowed into heaven. Now, that's not at all scriptural. And so we think, well, it, it would never happen, but it can happen. And we have to be on guard. Our human-made traditions are usually more important to us than the God-given ones. And that's a dangerous place. Now, it's not wrong to have traditions in a church. We have traditions. As long as those traditions uh, in, bring glory to God and don't take Him from the throne and remind us of our godly heritage. I'm grateful for many of the traditions we have, but we have to be careful not to make these traditions equal to God's Word. So Paul issues these warnings. Now, these false traditions uh, that the teachers were teaching were hollow and deceptive for another reason. In ancient Greece, uh, the word where Paul says these elemental spirits of the universe, these false teachers were teaching that angels influenced planets. Like if they made planets spin and move, that angels influenced stars, that they influenced asteroids. And it was one of the, the words that, that, that the religious people of that day used uh, in the study of astrology. Now today, that word is, we call it the zodiac, the system of the zodiac, and it's the exact same system that was being introduced to the people at Colossus. They were being taught that angels move the stars and that the stars and the alignment of the stars and the heavenly bodies influenced our lives. And so they studied astrology, which today is our zodiac. And, and Paul warns them that uh, later in chapter 2, uh, about the new moon and other religious practices that are determined by planetary alignments because they were practicing the zodiac like we know it today when you read it in the back of the paper. And, and, and one thing is certain, teachings about demons and angels as being some kind of uh, god or even a, a demigod is not a part of Christian doctrine. We worship God, not angels. We worship God and not stars or planets. And any teaching of that nature is purely satanic because you're filtering and diluting the true word of God. And so we've got to be careful. I almost cringe when I hear people say, well, you know, my husband is an angel in heaven now. Well, no, he's not. We don't become angels when we die. God made angels one time. Sometime uh, before he created Adam, God made angels because we know Satan fell, Lucifer fell before Adam and Eve uh, were in the garden because he was cast to the earth. Uh, but God made angels one time. There are good angels that are still angels. There are angels that rejected God, and we call those demons. 
And they work for Satan. And we don't worship uh, those created beings. When we die, we'll be known as we were known. We maintain our, our character, our personality. We'll know each other. And we are people after we pass away, either people living in heaven or people living in hell. Paul pushes us to say and to understand that horoscopes and astral charts and Ouija boards and other such pagan practices, the whole zodiac system, is contrary to the teaching of God's Word. They're not innocent, fun games. Things like Ouija boards that we have today, those are dangerous tools because you're attempting to communicate with the satanic. When you submit to uh, astral charts and things like that, you're submitting yourself to satanic influence. And that's what was going on in Coloss. The people in Coloss were doing exactly the same thing. They were looking to the stars and, and the angels and, and moving the planets. And they were being taught this stuff. And, and the Christian who dabbles in mysticism in the occult is asking for trouble. And so Paul is throwing up a red flag here to believers everywhere. Don't go there. Stay alert. Don't become kidnapped by hollow and deceptive teaching. I mean, why follow empty philosophy when we already have the fullness of Christ? Paul is helping us understand that we have everything that we need in Christ. You don't need to add anything to it. You don't need anything else. And, and it's like turning away from a satisfying clear spring to drink at the dirty cisterns of the world. Because that's what we do anytime that we dilute or add to Christian teaching and philosophy as revealed in the Word of God. So Paul gave the true and lasting antidote to all false teaching. It's a two-part statement. He says, in Christ we find all the fullness of God. And in Christ, we who are saved are made full. So why in the world would anyone ever think that they need something else? And obviously they did, or Paul would not have written this letter. The church was in trouble. False teaching was infiltrating the Christian church at Coloss. If it wasn't, Paul would not have written this letter. But it had gotten into the church. Now the word fullness, when he says, Paul uses the word fullness, that the fullness of the deity dwells in Christ, he's telling us that the sum total of all that God is, all of His being, all of His attributes, are found in Jesus Christ. All of God. Jesus Christ is the fullness of God. That fullness dwells continually and permanently in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is never not the fullness of God. The amazing thing is that every believer shares that fullness when we accept Christ our Lord and Savior. The moment you accepted Christ, you became complete in Him. And that fullness that you received when you became complete in Christ at the moment of your salvation is a permanent experience. When a person is born again to the family of God, they are born as complete people in Christ, spiritually speaking. Your spiritual growth is not by addition, because that's what was happening in Coloss. They were adding things to the theology, to the faith. Our spiritual growth comes by nutrition. We feed upon the Word of God. We read the Bible. We study the Bible. We 
pray. And nothing needs to be added to Christ because He already is the very fullness of God. So there's nothing else that we need. And so Paul's issuing this, this warning to believers to let them know and, and to guide them into understanding. It's dangerous to step away without Christ. It's dangerous to leave shore without Him. It's dangerous. Paul made it clear that the the Christian is not subject in any way to the Old Testament legal system in this passage. He's telling us that Jesus alone is sufficient for our every spiritual need. When we accept Christ our Lord and Savior, we're identified with Christ because He's the head of the body, Paul says here. And we are members of that body. So Paul gives a fourfold explanation of our identification with Christ and the importance of it. What it means for us to be known and to know Christ in an intimate, salvific relationship where we know Him as Lord and Savior. First, Paul says in verse 1 that the saved person is circumcised in Christ. Now, if a saved person is circumcised in Christ, that would mean that the lost person remains uncircumcised circumcision if you think back to the the story of abraham circumcision was a sign of god's covenant with the jewish people it was a binding contract between abraham and his descendants it was a physical circumcision a physical operation but it had spiritual significance a believer experiences what paul's trying to help us understand a spiritual circumcision whenever we're saved every person male female we have the old nature cut away it's what he's trying to say when we accept christ as our lord and savior we experience a spiritual circumcision when we're saved of removing that old nature when jesus christ died and rose again he won a complete and final victory over sin sin could never again defeat a person because of what christ accomplished our old sinful nature is spiritually made inoperative when we accept christ our lord and savior that way we're no longer enslaved to its desires now our old sinful nature is there and we'll carry it with us to the grave it's not erased but we don't have to yield to it anymore we don't have to yield to the sin anymore we're set free the power of sin has been broken, and we have the, the power now to yield our lives to Christ, to walk in His power and in the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what Paul says when a person is circumcised in Christ. It's a spiritual circumcision where you're set free because the old sin nature is cut away. It's gone. It doesn't rule you, reign you anymore. You're set free. In verse 12 and 13, Paul says that a saved person is alive in Christ. Well, that would mean that a lost person is dead without Christ. They don't have Christ in their life. And here Paul uses the illustration of baptism. Water baptism by immersion. We're Baptists. And we don't sprinkle, we don't dunk. We do a full body immersion when possible. 
Sometimes there are physical limitations and you can't do a full body immersion. But when we baptize someone, we cover their mouth, we say that they're buried in Christ and they go all the way under the surface of the water. I mean, there's no, not even any toes popping up. And then you say, walk, raise to walk in newness of life. That water baptism by immersion is a reenactment. It's a picture of a person being made alive in Christ. You are enacting the spiritual circumcision that you experienced because you accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior. And this baptism by immersion that makes us alive in Christ is also a spiritual experience. It happens to the part of us that lives eternally, our soul. Just as the circumcision happens to the part of us that lives eternally, our soul. So this example of being made alive in Christ and Paul using baptism as an example is a permanent transaction when we're made alive in Christ. And when we're saved, we are instantly, the moment we accept Christ, we are instantly baptized into the Spirit by the covering of Jesus Christ. We are immediately baptized into the body of Christ and we're immediately identified with the head who is Jesus Christ in the moment that we accept Him as Lord and Savior. Water baptism is a picture, a reenactment of that transaction. You have died and you're raised to life in Christ. This identification means then that whatever happened to Christ happened to us. And Paul wants us to know that the experience of salvation to our soul is a monumental thing. And he uses baptism to help us understand. Just as Christ died, we died. What died? The old self. All the sin, the debt that we carried. When Christ was buried, we're buried. In that enactment, that picture of baptism helps us understand that when Christ rose again, we arose with Him. And so that's why we have the death, the burial, and the resurrection of the believer reenacting the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ to new life. And, and we left the grave clothes of the old life behind, and now we have eternal life because we accepted Christ as our Lord and Savior. So Paul says a, a saved person is alive in Christ. Third, he says that a saved person is free from the law, the Old Testament law. We're not free from being obedient children. But we are set free from the religious regulations and requirements of the Old Testament law. Lost people are still condemned under that same law because they cannot measure up to God's holiness. And so they remain condemned in their sin debt. Now Jesus, we know that He took our sins to the cross. He took your sins, my sins, the sins of the whole world to the cross. But he also took the law to the cross. And when Jesus took the law to the cross, it was also nailed to the cross, just as our sins were nailed to the cross. Now, it was impossible for anyone to meet the demands and the requirements of the Old Testament law. It was impossible. You could not do it. 
And the law was given so that we could understand that we could never in any way in our own self ever meet up to Christ's standards or expectations. It's impossible. Some other transaction had to happen, had to take place. When Jesus shed His blood for sinners, Paul says that that we had a great debt that we carried. And when Jesus shed His blood for sinners, He paid that debt through His shed blood. And it was a debt that was against sinners because of our disobedience to God's holy law. And because we're disobedient to God's holy law, we accumulated a sin debt. But Jesus paid the full debt when He died on the cross. The whole debt. But He did even more than just cancel the debt. He took the law that had condemned all of humanity. The law has condemned us and He set it aside so that we are no longer under the dominion of the law. Paul says rather in in the book of Romans that we are delivered from the law. He says in Romans chapter 6 verse 14 that we are not under the law. We are now under grace. God's unmerited favor Ephesians 2 8 and 9 it is by grace you've been saved the gift of God nothing you can brag nothing you can boast because you could never earn it but you can receive it today our relationship with Jesus Christ makes it possible for us to obey God out of love rather than fear Living under Old Testament law was a life of fear. Always afraid of the condemnation and the wrath of God coming. But now, Paul says, you're forgiven, you're set free, and you can love God freely and not out of fear. Fourth, our identification with Christ is important because in verse 15, he says, the saved person is victorious in Christ. That means the lost remain defeated. And they shall always be defeated. Jesus dealt with sin and the law on the cross. But he also dealt with Satan. Christ's death for just a moment looked like a great victory to Satan. Satan thought he had done what he wanted to do. He thought he had defeated the true and living God. He thought that he had won the battle, that the victory was his, and he got to think that for three days. But Christ's death turned out to be the greatest defeat that Satan could ever experience, and he will never recover from it. He can never be back to the place that he was. Jesus Christ won a complete victory when he rose from the dead. You and I share in this victory over the devil because Christ is our Lord and Savior. The satanic armies and principalities and powers are defeated and disgraced. I mean, what a wonderful position and provision that we have in Christ. Powerful, life-changing, eternity-changing experience when we know Christ as our Lord and Savior. And Paul makes it clear 
in explaining this fourfold explanation of our identification in Christ that we should never ever let that get muddled down. Don't tinker with it. Don't be led astray by hollow and deceptive doctrines. Stick to the ancient past and hold on tight. There are people who will try to convince you that, that it's not worth it. There was a man who went to a town I read this week that he was speaking on religion and philosophy to a group of people and they happened to be out in the country and there was a gentleman listening to him speak about how false Christ was and how he was refuting everything that Christ had ever done and maybe Christ never even lived and, and how it's not important to be saved or to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. How can you if he's not even real? So the gentleman listened to this guy speak over and over and over. And at the end of his, his speaking time, he took questions from the floor. Would anyone like to ask a question? That man that had been sitting back there listening to him spew all this poison out walked up to the platform, he took an orange out of his pocket, and he peeled that orange. That man watched him peel the orange, and then he ate each segment of that orange. After he finished eating the orange, he looked to the gentleman, he said, Sir, can you tell me how sweet my orange was? He said, You're an idiot. Of course I can't tell you how sweet it was. I never tasted it. He said, You've never tasted my Jesus either. We've tasted Christ. He is your Lord and Savior. you got to protect it. Don't be carried off. Don't allow your family to be carried off by fine-sounding doctrine and hollow philosophies. It only leads to trouble. We're going to sing a hymn invitation. And as we do, are you living your faith? Let's stand together. If you've got a spiritual need or a spiritual decision, I'll be glad to pray with you here. You can come pray alone. But this is the time to, to make that decision.